welcome to Radical Math Talk, the podcast dedicated to the revolutionaries in math education. I'm your host, Kwame Sarfamensa, and on this podcast, I will highlight the incredible educators who are reshaping, redefining, and decolonizing the way that math education is taught in our schools. In other words, this will not be your typical math podcast. My goal is to center the stories and hidden truths that will not only ignite a cultural paradigm shift in math education, but more specifically, explore the multiple ways in which math can be used as a vehicle for social justice and anti-racist solidarity. So if you are ready for a math revolution like no other, then sit back, relax, and lend me your ears as we embark on this journey together. Enjoy the show. Welcome to a brand new episode of Radical Math Talk, the show for the revolutionaries in math education. I'm your host, Kwame Sarfamensa. If this is your first time tuning in to the Radical Math Talk podcast, I welcome you and I hope that you return for future episodes and there'll be many more of these. And if you are a returning listener or viewer of this podcast, I welcome you back and I hope that today's episode is one that you find informative, enlightening, and of course, insightful. So before we get into the main event, just a reminder for our folks on YouTube, please hit that subscribe button, that red subscribe button, so you can get some future notifications on new episodes. We also welcome any monetary donations for those who want to contribute to the Dandy Talk media platform. We accept them through Cash App and Venmo. So if you're on Cash App, the handle is going to be money sign ID Talk for Ed. If you're on Venmo, the handle will be at Kwame SM. And for those who are listening from Apple Podcasts or any of the other audio platforms, be sure to subscribe from there as well, as we also do the audio version of this podcast. Thank you kindly. So listen, today is another great conversation we're going to have, and it's going to be all focused on the importance of implementing ethnic studies into our math curricular framework. So over the past few years across many states, you're seeing a lot of state legislatures pushing for a mandate for ethnic studies curriculum, particularly in the humanities department, but now we're starting to see it integrate more into math, which is something that people think, oh, that's an odd marriage. How can you have ethnic studies within the math curriculum? So person that I have today is someone who has really pushed for this curricular framework, and she has done a lot of groundwork with regard to building the foundational elements of this within her city of Seattle, and is now starting to expand within the home state of Washington. Not D.C., y'all, but we're talking Pacific Northwest Washington, so let's not get that twisted. She's an educator, she is an advocate, she is a fighter, a champion for racial equity, and she's just dope overall. And I'm just excited to have her on the podcast to talk with us about her journey as a math educator and then some of the racial equity work she's doing right now. So without further ado, let's bring on Shraddha Sharude to the podcast to talk with us about her work and just life as a math educator in this world. So let's bring her on. Hello. Hey, Kwame. Wow, thank you for that introduction. (laughs) 
Listen, on this podcast, we got to do our guests right. Give them their flowers while they're here. Because one thing that I know as a teacher is we don't always center ourselves or feed into ourselves in the way that we should. And part of that is just giving those affirmations and, and just those positive words of empowerment, not just to others, but to ourselves. <laughs> I appreciate that one. Yeah. I'm not, I'm getting better at accepting them. <laughs> oh no, it's a process. It's still a process for me. So <laughs> I still have a ways to go, but I feel like I'm much better than I was years back for sure. Definitely some growth there. Ooh, but how are you feeling? Well, today technically um, is the first day of midwinter break for us. And so I'm excited and energized to have a little space, you know, um, just taking time for myself, for me and my, my partner, our families, and getting some rest, but also getting some clarity. That's the most important thing I think about that break provides for me is sometimes we get caught up in the day-to-day teaching and we forget why we're there. We forget what it means to be a teacher. And sometimes having that space of break allows for me to remind myself why I love teaching, why I love math, why I love my students and why I do all the racial equity work because it's exhausting. And so the breaks that we get are so critical and to really take them. Yes. Um, the racial equity work is physically and emotionally and even at times spiritually taxing. Mm-hmm. And these breaks are definitely necessary. And I wasn't sure if people did midwinter breaks in Washington, because I know it's the thing in Massachusetts where you get that February week off during yep. President's Day. But I wasn't sure how widespread it was nationwide. So that's good that y'all gain that break. Yeah, I'm not really sure it's, it's where everybody gets it. I've, I've learned, I've heard that it's uh, places that get snow get it because so that people have a chance to go enjoy the snow. Right. <laughs> um, so, hey, man, if that's what it is, then that's awesome. <laughs> yes, yes. Maybe the one time that we lean into Mother Nature. sort the of One time, right? <laughs> yeah. So usually the way we start this podcast is we allow our guests to just share their mathography. So mm-hmm. what we want our guests to do is to just share an autobiography of their math journey. So just starting from you know, how they grew up, how they crossed paths with math, how they grew with math, and how that journey has taken them to where they are now. So just kind of give us a sense of that journey that you had to take to get to where you are, you know, with math. I love talking about my math journey because it's an opportunity for me to talk about my grandfather. He's an ancestor now, but it was my absolute, he was my absolute favorite person in our family. He was a math teacher in India specifically, and that's where I was born. And so I really enjoyed math in school because I was good at it, like elementary school, I should add just because I thought it was really fun. And I think what the things that inspired that was my grandfather. Um, I remember this was, so he came to visit us in America twice when I was really, really young. Once when I was about five-ish years old and I was going to preschool. And so he would walk me every day to daycare and he would hand me, he would, you know, he'd grab the cashews and he'd say, you know, grab a handful of cashews. And then he would grab a handful of cashews and we would eat the uh, cashews. And I remember one time just having a like small conversation and him being like, you know, you have to eat all those cashews. They're for you, not for anybody else. You have to eat them all. And then I would eat them. And then one time I asked him, you know, like, how come you get more cashews than I do? Because I just loved, loved them. And, and he talked about, you know, be like, well, we both eat a handful. Like, look how small your hand is and look how big mine is. 
but everybody needs a handful of cashews and that's enough. And one handful is enough for anybody. And, you know, I never thought about it at the time, but he was teaching me proportions and math and counting. Um, and that kind of, I think that was one of the very first experiences that I had that made me love, love math. But then actually the second time that I can think of was when he came back and I was in second grade. And he would do the Sudoku, uh, sorry, not Sudoku puzzles. He would do the crossword puzzles every day in India in the newspaper. And then we had gotten, this was back when, you know, newspapers were still delivered. I think they still deliver them now, but very few people have them. But he would do the news, the, the crossword puzzles in the newspaper here too when he was visiting. But like he would get really frustrated because sometimes the words in crosswords have to do with culture, right? Like sometimes it can be slang, pop culture, etc. And my grandfather was, you know, he spoke English well and read and wrote and everything, but like it was not his first language and he was Indian, right? His culture was not American. And so he really struggled with the crossword sometimes. And so I had actually learned what Sudoku puzzles were in school and I taught him how to do that. And he absolutely fell in love with it. And until the day he died, more or less, he did the Sudoku puzzles every single day in the crossword the crossword and the Sudoku puzzles in the newspaper every single day. And, you know, like as I aged um, a little bit, got a little older and realized like if that's the type of influence that I could have teaching somebody something as fun and exciting as math, like I want to become a math teacher because I just taught somebody something that changed their life forever. And I want to do that more. And that was really that kind of entry point into not just loving math because I love patterns and numbers are fun to play with. But also, like, I can change someone's life and bring joy to it using numbers. And that was huge for me. And that was when I was eight years old. And that's still a big reason why I keep teaching every day is sometimes you see those light bulb moments. And or you have a kid ask you a silly, fun question about numbers. And when they learn, they get excited and they're like, oh, my God, that's why it's so cool. And like those moments are why I teach. Wow. Wow. And, and that's awesome. That's awesome. So. From age eight on, you knew that you will be doing something tied to math. Something. Something. It was always going to be teaching. That was just. I fluctuated a little bit because I love talking and arguing specifically. And my parents were like, you'd be a good lawyer. And I was like, yeah. And then I'll make money. And that's numbers. (laughs) (laughs) Eight-year-old logic. It's very sound. Um, But I just liked arguing with people as a kid and proving why I was right. And so, you know, it turned out I was not a fan of lawyering because there was a lot of like really like wordy language and all that kind of stuff involved when I started to like learn more about it. And I was like, this is dumb. And I just disagreed with all the laws that I read about. <laughs> and so I was like, yeah, this isn't for me. I'm not doing it. And that was in around middle school. <laughs> <laughs> we started learning more about government stuff. And I was like, the government sucks. I don't want to be a lawyer. This is the worst thing ever. Mm, I, I still hold that. <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. But I kind of feel like the way Twitter is and just the way things are, especially when we talk about CRT, we talk about just mm-hmm. racial equity and just where we are as not just a country, but just overall, just in our society. I feel like you have to have those learning skills just to get people to understand that what they're saying is wrong. The narratives that they're pushing are wrong. The laws that they are pushing for are inhumane and are decentering the humanity of marginalized communities, 
you know, like mm-hmm. you kind of have to be a lawyer when you, when you do that, because unless you're able to convince them with the sound evidence, which is out there, mm-hmm. that what's going on is wrong, they're going to find some way to try to twist or just misconstrue whatever words you put out. So. Well, and I mean, and I'll add, like, it's very mathematical, that work, right? And I never have great experiences with geometry when I was learning it in school. Because, well, of course, you know, we don't, we don't, in high school, we, we don't teach mathematics, we teach philosophy. That's why we teach pure math, we teach philosophy. And so proofs were a huge part of it. And I absolutely despised learning about proofs, because it was just, you had to accept so many things to be true in order to prove something in mathematics. And again, that's that philosophy side of it, right? Euclidean geometry is very philosophical. And I realized that a really positive way to have kids actually understand, number one, why we do proofs, because that was the biggest thing, right, is why should I do this at all, is actually applying proofs to real world and actually having them watch something or pick a topic and instead of doing a debate, write a proof and why their side of this is better than another, right? You can write proofs and you can write counter proofs. That's a thing that's mathematical. That's what we do in math. We do that in both geometry and we do that in pre-calculus too. They're both those uh, standards for both of those courses if we're looking at common core. Mm. But actually having them have to do proofs and counter proofs for real world applications suddenly changes their understanding of why it's so valuable. Because when we do it in pure math, it allows us to um, do it in a way that helps us create logic, like those brain connections in our brain of what logic actually is without getting into the stickiness of context. Mm. And I think when I look back at my own K-12 math journey, a lot of the teaching that I received in that realm was really about how to do computations. Mm-hmm. So it's what we, so it's basically the whole debate between conceptual knowledge versus the procedural knowledge of yeah. um, math where, okay, we focus so much on the procedural. Give me an algorithm. Give me a formula. Let me plug the numbers into where the variables are, solve the problem, I'm good. Yeah. Right? It yeah. was never it was never a situation where we had to prove theorems or conjectures and, and things of that nature. It wasn't until I got to college that I started to learn more of that abstract math, whether it's number theory, whether it's differential calculus, because I was a math major in school. So I had to take all these courses, all the calcs, all the probability courses, the differentiated geometry courses and and everything else, which is very proof heavy. And I believe that because I didn't have that background coming into my undergrad, I struggled through many of those courses. I don't know if that was the case for you, if you came in with that foundation. My journey with mathematics when it comes to learning really shifted in high school. Math was super easy for me. K8, loved it, made sense. Algebra 1 was dope. And then geometry came around and I was like, what the fuck is this? <laughs> and I did not get it. I didn't understand it. And also at the time, I think part of it, so for context, I am I have epilepsy and so I am a disabled educator. <laughs> and I was having a really rough time with my seizures because, well, puberty does things to your brain. And the things that were working when you were a young child don't don't really continue to work when you become a teenager. And so all those medication shifts, missing class, having seizures, forgetting everything I just learned. And, you know, trying to keep up with all of it um, did not do super great. 
I, you know, got through and by super great, I mean, I was getting B's. I wasn't like bad at it or anything, but I had the capacity to be doing better than I was. And then calculus came around and I pretty sure I only passed that class with a C because I was crying about the fact that I had a D and my teacher was just like, this is the most sad, pathetic thing I've ever seen. I'm going to give this girl a C just so that she doesn't have that, that D or E on her grade because that's where I was at. Honestly, my understanding was not good. And it was, you know, it was 100%, I feel, due to the fact that I was disabled and I didn't even know what a 504 plan was. I didn't know that epilepsy was considered a disability. I didn't know that people didn't experience these things and that there was actually support around it because my family was family of immigrants, did not ever experience these types of things before, didn't know the expectations, didn't know the rules, and had no idea that my grades were not 100% a reflection of my understanding, but rather a reflection of my capacity as a disabled student. Right. And I learned that in college, fortunately, a little bit too late. And in college, it was even worse. My seizures, I was having seizures almost every single week in college. And so everything that I was learning in one ear or the other, like I learned it, I did the, I did well, I did understood. And then I would have a seizure and forget everything we learned that week. And I start all over. And that was my experience for at least the first couple of years of, of college. And then we finally got things under control a little bit more around my third year. But then by then I had dropped the math major because I wasn't able to pass the classes um, enough to, I got, I got a C minus and they were like, we don't accept that for um, linear algebra. They wouldn't accept a C minus as a passing grade to move on to whatever the next class was. Wow. Differential equations, I think it is. Wow. Um, they said I had to have at least a C in order to go on to differential equations and I had to retake the class. And I was at a private school and I had a, you know, I had a scholarship, but like not, I couldn't reach, I wouldn't be able to afford retaking a $6,000 class. And so I was forced to drop my math major and I just, I took a couple stats classes and got a, a minor instead. And it was, it was because I didn't know my rights as a disabled student. Mm. So just given your experience, what are your thoughts about, the prevalence of ableism in our, just in math in general, specifically, but also how how it intersects with just the racism that we see as well, because there's an intersection there. (laughs) Yeah, well, because part of it, right, is the fact that my family didn't know that we had any rights. Mm -hmm. I didn't know that, I did not know that I could have asked for accommodations, much less modifications. I had no idea. And, um, you know, racially, there's a stigma because anti-blackness is big in all people of color communities. And in school, the students who were in special ed were black. That's that's just, that's a downright truth, right? And when you're not learning about racism, bias, or any of it in school, you're going to go with what you see. And so it wasn't until college that I really even learned much at all about racism because I went to a mostly white school and all the black kids were in special ed. They weren't taking the classes I was taking. Mm-hmm. And so to, you know, that, that was not in my head to even try to learn what that stuff was about. It did not occur to me to learn what that, what was happening there. I thought special ed was about behavior because that's all I saw. I, what I, well, I didn't see students who didn't know what they were doing or that were dumb or nothing, right? All I saw was students who were constantly in trouble. Mm-hmm. That's what I saw. So I assumed that special ed was a behavior thing and not anything to do with learning. And those students were marginalized and seen as the bad kids or the dumb kids. No, I'm, I'm sorry, I couldn't actually see those. Eh? But that wasn't because of their like abilities in school. It was just the fact that teachers got upset with them all the time. And that was it. 
And so then the idea of being associated with those students was not, it wasn't just about the fact that I would be considered dumb or bad, but it was because then would I also be associated with everything else that's seen negatively about the Black community? Would that be put on me? And that was a huge unlearning that I had to do. And, you know, I want to share about that side of it first, because yes, I have marginalizations, but I also had a lot of flaws in my experiences. And my journey with race and racism did not start out with, I was (laughs) pre-woke. I had to learn and I had to unlearn. And, you know, when it comes to the ableism within the math community, it hits home because right now I have a student who comes into my classroom every day begging to be in my class and I want him in my class. I shouldn't, I'm exaggerating, not every day. He probably comes by once every couple weeks. He's in a special ed classroom right now. And he tells me, Mr. Day, you know, like, I want to be in your class. And and I want to tell him, you know, like, I I tell him, I'm like, I want you to be here too. But his case manager doesn't feel like he's ready. Even though I know he could do, I'm willing to do the work of modifying my curriculum so he can be in an inclusive space. But his case manager doesn't want him in there. And he is an immigrant student. And exactly what's happening to me, I see happening right in front of my eyes. And people of color and teachers of color are not exempt from this behavior. And that's what's happening. And that's frustrating for me. And as his non-teacher and non-case manager, I have no power in this situation other than to keep begging them to put this child in my class and saying, I want to work with them, please. They will be able to do well in my course because I know how to differentiate. I know how to create curriculum that can have multiple entry levels and multiple bars, right? Like, his, yes, I recognize that he cannot do calculus. So while we, you know, while I am teaching students about, I don't know, I'm trying to think of some example off the top of my head, but like, you know, while another student might be learning how to do a proof, he might be practicing his uh, multiplication skills. That's fine because we can all do that in the same context. And wherever we're at can be an entry point into my ethnic studies course because it's content. Um, it's, it's based on application. It's based on context. It's not based on skills. It's not based on what you were saying, right? The procedural elements of it. And so much of the issue that I've found with ableism in our, at least in math ed, I should say in the math ed community, is that if a student has failed another class, they must not be able to be, they must not be ready for this class. There's the one right way, right? That, that characteristic of white supremacy, that is, there is one pathway to success in math and it is this. And if you do not fit this, and if you cannot achieve this, then you are not destined to be a mathematician which is what happened to me, right? I am not destined to be a mathematician because I wasn't able to get into differential calculus because of my scores with multivariable calculus. And now that I'm trying to go around and get in there, you're not qualified to teach college level math. And these are all like literally things that I'm currently dealing with, with universities not wanting to allow me to teach courses as college and high school because I don't have a degree in mathematics, even though what I'm teaching would not be anything advanced level like i'm not even i know myself well enough to know that i'm not at a space of understanding with calculus to teach it i know how to do it if a student asks me for help procedurally i can procedurally support them but to create content i would not be able to do that for a calculus class yet i'm not quite there i would need to retake classes i would need to work with another teacher all of those things like i'm aware of those things but the courses that i'm trying to teach we get into minimal like i teach things that I know I'm good at, like number theory. I love number theory. Um, my favorites. Yeah, it's so interesting. And it's, it's such an insult to our students that we don't teach them any number theory in grade school or that what they're learning in elementary school is number theory. Like 
they are. They're learning number theory. They're learning about place value. Perfect numbers. Exactly. Like, I teach students about modulus. They're like, what is, mo- what, what is modulus? And I'm like, do you know how to tell time? Modulus. You know how to go through a, a week? Like what's, what comes after Sunday? Monday? Why is, why is it not, you know, like quadruple day or something? Like, why is it, why is it Monday? Like, well, cause it was only seven. So wait, you just repeat. What does, what does it mean when you're saying that it's February 2nd, 2022? Mm. Right. Like you can even find your birthday. Exactly. Using my we, we do that at the beginning of the year, every year in all of my classes is we do numbers here because I want the students to know that math is not scary. And no matter what level you're at, including our special ed students and students who deal with those invisible disabilities that we don't see, right? I have so many students who get transferred into my class because I know how to work with disabled students, mm-hmm. right? And it's, it's like a backhanded compliment because what happens is then I have, I get a lot of students who need a lot more differentiation, a lot more support. And I've kind of, my course now is starting to get this label of like a remedial course. And at no point should it be seen as a remedial course. Number one, it's a college and a high school course. So like students are learning and getting college credits for college level content. So where, you know, like I was one student who was, we did, we were doing registration just recently okay. for next year. And um, a few students told me that they were hearing from other staff that they would be, you know, they would ask like, oh, should I take business math or should I take algebra two? Like these are my geometry students. And a lot of teachers or staff, or I don't even know who it was because, you know, students aren't snitches, so they wouldn't tell me. <laughs> but they, were, they said that a staff member told them, if you're planning to go to college, don't take that class. What? And I was just like, wait, but this is a college and the high school course. Make it make sense. Mm, wow. And the only thing that I've ever promoted my class as has been two things. Number one, math application is not a, just a procedural course. It's an application-focused course. And number two, that it's centered around the lived experiences of people of color. That's it. (laughs) That's it. That's all I've ever said about the course, because that's all it is. It changes every year. Honestly, that's what I'm learning is that it's changes. The curriculum that I teach changes every year because our context changes every year. The world is nothing like what it looked like last year. And my students are nothing like who they were last year. And so I change my curriculum every year to fit the students that I have. And the main reasons that it works for the college course that I'm in, that I'm working with, is because they don't have contexts that they teach, right? They have skills. So I can fit those skills and, those, and the content, the theoretical content and things like that, into any application, depending on what my students are interested in or what's happening in the world. That's what allows it the ability to be so differentiatable. Is that a word? I think that's a word. (laughs) If it's not a word, we're going to count it as a word uh, tonight. (laughs) Yeah. So, and that, you know, those are just some of the like beauties of the course. And it's so strange to me that the beauty of the course and the joy that my students experience in it is also being the things that are holding that are holding the course back. And that's some of the, the racism within mathematics, right? People think if it's not pure math, meaning it's not abstract math, if it's not procedural math, then it's not valuable math. Mm. Unless, of course, we call it science. See, and, and that's where the whiteness comes in. Because we all came in with that conditioning, thinking that math is just procedural. It's all about root memorization. Yeah. It's all about fact fluency, right? That's how... When I first was a teacher, I mean, I came in with that mindset, not knowing 
why the reciprocal is the way it is. Why do we flip the reciprocal when we are dividing fractions? Why do we do that? And then change it to the to a time sign. Why do we do that? I just knew how to do it because that's how I was taught. That's the procedural part. But conceptually, I was weak yeah. because I was never told why. It wasn't until college that I understood why. It wasn't until I started to take pedagogy courses in math that I started to understand the whys. Yeah. The why we do this step, why we do this, why we do that. So that's well, one of the big issues is that I noticed that I never got that either until mm. I entered into math education, like secondary right. math education. And our elementary teachers aren't getting that. No at all. Not at all. And so I'm getting students who only have procedural fluency. And that's why when I'm teaching number theory, I'm having to go back to elementary level foundational mathematics and help them to understand what place value really means. Now, because they need to understand place value in order to end exponents. Then when I'm able to explain to them what exponents are, then we can start talking about different dimensions, right? That's when we can start talking about points, lines, and planes. Mm. And what does 3D actually mean? And then that's when they can actually start to understand matrices. And that's when we can get into coding. But if they don't have place value understanding, how do we get there? But But here's the thing, though. You're hitting this point here. Now, do you believe that a lot of elementary school teachers don't come in with that foundation? Is it because of the fact that they're typically generalist? They're teaching all these different subjects. They're teaching reading. They're teaching writing. They're teaching science, social studies. Typically, at the elementary school level, you don't really start departmentalizing until you get into mm-hmm. middle school and high school. Mm-hmm. So, well, they shouldn't have to depart to compartmentalize at all because I think. At the secondary level, one of our huge flaws is the fact that we compartmentalize. Okay. But what I see and, you know, and and to be clear, I'm not an elementary educator, so I cannot speak to this with full experience. I can only speak to the ways that I've worked in elementary, which has mostly been through being a support staff and doing programming before and after school. And what I have observed through that and my teaching programs, because I have a certification in K-8 education, because that's what I did my undergraduate degree in when I wasn't able to complete math. My math major, I, sh- I shifted to adding more elementary ed into my, into my course load so that I would learn how to do that more. And one of the things that I observed in my classes, both in my undergraduate degree and in my teaching degree for my master's, was that I heard this phrase dozens of times. And I think there was probably like 40 or 50 educators that I were with, like partnered with, right? Either as students coincide, like my classmates or in the school buildings. And fear was actually the reason. It had nothing to do with, with the fact that they couldn't, that they had to compartmentalize or that they weren't able to do things X, Y, and Z. It was none of that. It was fear. It was legitimate math trauma. And I would hear phrases like, I'm not a math person coming from educators. I hate that so much. They would say things like, oh, you know, I'm so glad I'm teaching elementary because like sometimes they'll do, I'm hoping I'll end up at a school where they do like grouping for math. And so then it's just like a separate thing that we just like do and then it's over with and we can go back to our day. Things like that where they actually were compartmentalizing, but just for math. And so math is this other thing over there, not just physically in their curriculum or day day by day, but also in their own minds because it was so triggering for so many people. The experiences that they had were so harmful that they actually wanted to ignore it altogether. And if they had had the choice, they wouldn't teach it at all. Mm. 
And it has nothing to do with those people. It's all to do with the experiences that they've had. It has nothing to do with them as mathematicians because elementary teachers are amazing in the amount of work that they can do and the the impact that they have on those kids. Um, And it's really a failure of the math ed community to have created a culture where people have so much fear that even our teachers are fearful of teaching math. And that part is so true. And this is just from my experience working at a K-8 school where I was a middle school math teacher. And we didn't do a whole lot of professional development around math because of what you just mentioned. So many of our elementary school teachers still had that trauma from when they were students and they just carried into their career as teachers. So like every time there was conversation around a math PD, you start to see the anxiety in people's faces. You start to see teachers tense up. Yeah. Like, oh, I don't know if I can do this. And here's what starts happening. Some of the teachers were purposely using some of the math time to do other subjects because of this trauma, because of this anxiety. Like, okay, it's supposed to be a 45 minute math block, but we still got to do some more work in reading. So I'm going to just cut into it mm-hmm. and we'll spend 20 minutes instead. Like, And then all you get is the procedural, but also like that's, I take responsibility for that. Yeah. That's my fault. That's your fault. That's math community's fault. We've created this. You're right. And we're not doing anything to dismantle that, to actually address and support that fear. Then what are we doing? What is the point? Because just students being able to love math in my classroom isn't enough. Because that means that the joy of that math sits there and that learning stays in the classroom and it's not being carried out into the world. And I don't know what the answers are. I have one way that I really want to support changing the narrative of mathematics is through ethnic studies. That's what I really want to do. That's why I'm pushing it so much. And it's not because I think that the way that the, it's not because I think that math is bad or the type of math that I learned was not good to learn. That is not a good entry point for anybody. And most people that I know that really were able to be successful in math or were able to get into, like, do really well with it, had entry points from somewhere else that allowed them to accelerate in there, right? Whether that was a parent who loved them, um, who taught them to love love math through a different way, or that they did math camps and things like that, or they were super into science and realized the value of those equations or science teachers showed them what the greatness of that was, or whatever the situation is. It's not, I don't know very many people who fell in love with math because of a math teacher. Mm, Yeah. You and me both. Uh, You and me both. So, so we want to get into this show your work section. You've already been showing the work, right? So as math teachers, this is one of our favorite phrases to say. Student comes to us with a solution or just their work in general. We might get the solution, but we don't see the steps. And then we give them the paperback and say, hey, show your work. I need to see the evidence. I need to see that you fully understand the concept. And it's not that you're cheating, Mm -hmm. but I need to see the evidence. I need to see the proof that you fully understand because it's not about getting the answer. Sometimes it's the procedure that's great and not the answer. You learn more about how the student is thinking about it than you do with the answer. And I don't think there's any other content area that does it better than math Mm -hmm. or in the way that it does it personally. So you've been showing your work, your receipts, and just all the work you're doing around um, racial equity. And we've been talking a lot about 
just ethnic studies and math. So what I'm interested in knowing is how do we create an ethnic studies curriculum that is equitably and accurately covering the lived experiences of different historically marginalized groups? And the reason why I ask this is because, for instance, in California, where you have a very prominent you know, Mexican community, right? Mm-hmm. They're also pushing for ethnic studies. And with the curriculum that they had, there was more of an emphasis on other groups mm-hmm. than others. So then there was some controversy there, particularly from folks within the Jewish community and then also folks from the Mexican community as well. It's like, hold up, how come we only have this many pages for Chicano and the Chicana community? And then you have this many pages for this community. And then you just have all this debate and, and arguing going on. So I'm just interested in knowing how we can do this in a way that's equitable, but also accurately reflecting the different communities that we're trying to um, center. Well, I mean, thing number one, and I, I'm, I will speak to math, which is where, where I know. And to set things straight, ethnic studies in K-12 is very different from ethnic studies at the collegiate level. It is the, they are different. They address different things. And in math, it is not as ethnomathematics and ethnic studies math are two different things. Yeah. That's, that's, that's the clarity, I guess I'm trying to say in the sentence. And it makes a lot of sense that everybody's really sensitive about representation because there's not a lot of it. There's not enough of it for how many people of color there are, for how many Chicanos there are, how many Latinx people there are, how many Jewish people there are, how many black people there are. And nobody's a monolith. And so it's really frustrating when you only have that one or two types of representation, especially in a curriculum when you want yourself to be seen. And especially when you want your children to be seen. And that's why, at least for us at Washington Ethnic Studies now, we don't really want to provide curriculum for teachers. We want to provide frameworks. We want to provide professional development. And we want to provide ways of supporting educators and doing ethnic studies in their classroom, in their context without telling them what to do. Because if I have a classroom full of Chicano students, I need to teach something different than if I have a classroom full of Indian students. Because representation is important. And you also need to be able to teach empathy and diversity. And (laughs) you need to teach students about themselves and teach students that they're not the only kinds of people in the world. And we only, as our as our K-12 structure is we only have so many hours with our students. And so decisions have to be made. And that's the inherent politicalness, right, of teaching. Is people say teaching can't and shouldn't be political, but it has to be because I have to make decisions about what's important to teach and what's important and what what can be what can be provided as secondary or what can be kind of just briefly discussed over but not assessed. All of those decisions that we're making day to day, that's why it's political. Mm. And ethnic studies provides that lens of in through Washington ethnic studies. Now we have frameworks that have five different themes. And so those themes are identity. And let me make sure I don't, don't say anything and get numbers confused, but first, and we, these are cyclical, so they're not meant to be like in order, but indigeneity and identity, and then no indigeneity and origins, identity and agency. There we go. Action and reflection, power and oppression, and then resistance and liberation. So those are the five themes that we have for our frameworks. And in math education and in all other courses, but for me, when I'm creating my curriculum, my goal is throughout the year to hit 
every single one of those themes as a focus at least once. So this unit, you know, the central focus is going to be reflection and action. With this one, it's going to be resistance and liberation. And then within those, each of those units to address each of those themes within their, within, during different lessons, right? So every unit should have a conversation about indigeneity and origins. And that's the part that really speaks to what I think everyone is convinced that is all ethnic studies is, is about the ethnicities of our students and in history. But right now in mathematics, it's not even talked about. And so it is important that we include indigeneity and origins within every math math unit or lesson that math unit that we talk about, right? Like I'm teaching you all about, you know, I'm trying to think of something. I'm teaching you about how to solve for how to graph a line. Where does that come from? What is algebra? Let's talk about the basics. You know, let's talk about the word. Let's talk about the number system that we're using. Let's learn a little bit about the origins of these concepts and how that relates, right? And then the next uh, part of it is why the hell should you care? Where is your identity within this? How am I incorporating my students' lived experiences in this? And that's where you get to more of those details of the intersections, right? It's an opportunity. Maybe you recognize that you have a lot of students with disabilities in your course. So then we talk about disabilities and how that might relate to algebra or how algebra can support like anti-ableism or something like that, right? Like how things relate. And then you get into the reflection and action piece, right? Let's actually like, so what? Why is, what? So what? Now what do we do with this? Let's actually take some action. Let's reflect on our learning and actually do something about it. And then power and oppression is an opportunity. It's that the reason we have it as a single line, um, specifically within our framework, is because you can't teach ethnic studies without addressing power and oppression. You have to address those two things in order to actually understand where, you know, number one, you can't talk about the ethnic studies movement or teach ethnic studies without understanding where ethnic studies comes from. And ethnic studies liberation movement began as an act of resistance because of power and oppression. So that has to be incorporated when you're teaching ethnic studies unit. But then the key is, is you have to have the resistance and liberation in it. This is what separates ethnic studies from social justice movements, uh, social justice math, I find, is that a lot of times social justice math really centers in on power and oppression. Mm -hmm. And it's just a big story of trauma porn. That's what it feels like. It's so much of like, golly gee, people are so oppressed, so sad. I have to come and save them. And the context for the social justice, of course, is assuming that our systems work. Because you can only contextualize social justice based on what justice means right now. Right. This is when you start thinking about liberation and resistance and moves past that. When you incorporate indigeneity into it, you have to look back, right? When we think about the Sankofa framework, where you have to actually look back to move forward. And when we think about the Nahuelin, where you have to actually um, incorporate reflection into everything that you do. And there's a whole set, an entire piece of shedding skin. You have to get rid of stuff. And ethnic studies allows the space for your curriculum to have reflection, looking back, looking forward, understanding what's happening now, and using your curriculum to actually like empower and soothe and engage our students' souls, not just their like procedural memory. It's really engaging our students as whole people by enacting all of those different aspects of humanity within a unit. Wow. Now, now earlier, you were alluding to the fact that there are staff members within your school and probably teachers in other schools who are resistant to this ethnic studies curriculum. 
Now, all the things you mentioned about center and joy, about looking at the context of where we are, these are things that you can say for other content areas. Yeah. Right? Whether you talk about the humanities, soul studies, history, even our literacy courses, science, like we, we can talk about that in those mm-hmm. contexts. But then when math comes in, it's like, uh, that doesn't belong in this context. So what I'm wondering is with everything that you're mentioning to me, what is the challenge of shifting the paradigms of those resistant teachers who fail to see the connection mm-hmm. between math and the world that we live in? Well, there's two kinds of teachers, um, two kinds of people who are resistant to it, right? One is people who don't teach math and don't understand what we do. Sure. And the others are the ones who teach math and are convinced that there is one right way. And those are the two biggest barriers. And the question really is, is which one is more difficult? And I don't know quite yet. I have found that my math team is a lot more supportive of what I do than than the rest of my staff, which is awesome and awful at the same time. Because you would think that humanities teachers would be more supportive of that, right? Like, they're not necessarily. And you would think that math teachers who aren't doing it would be more resistant to that, but they're not necessarily. At least the ones in, in my school, I know um, my math department in general, people don't necessarily want to do what I do, but they're not going to get in my way of doing it because they see the value in what I'm doing. But the issue with a lot of math teachers who are resistant to doing it themselves is because it means reframing and rethinking everything they understand about math education. Absolutely. And that's a big barrier and it's a personal barrier. And I think it's more of a, it's more of those moments where it's like, I need to do self-work before I can do this. And self-work is really scary and painful. And I don't want to do something scary and painful right now because the world is scary and painful. And why would I, I'm not a masochist. (laughs) Well, Um, this is is where the right to comfort comes in. We're talking about white supremacy. You know what? Ooh. Oh, this is scary. Let me not go into this territory. Like, I like being in this space. I feel just super cozy in this space. Let me stay here. (laughs) Well, and that's the funny thing about it, right, is is that I can have the empathy to understand why people are scared to do this, but it sometimes feels like I don't get that same grace, right? I don't get a right to comfort Mm -hmm. because everyone is going to say what they want about the way that I teach. And I just have to to listen to it. Right. It doesn't have to be a bad thing either, right? People will comment and be like, I think it's so great that what you're doing is this, this and this. And it's like, thank you. Are you going to try? If it's so great, <laughs> are you going to do it too? It's like, oh, no, I, this is not, that's not something I can do. And it ends up what's, you know, what happens. And maybe you also understand experiences, but you become that teacher for mm-hmm. all, the special ed students, all the special ed students, all the ELL students all the behavior issues, you get all of that because you they know you can handle it and that you'll do right by those students. And that's what I mean by those backhanded compliments, right? Yeah. Because officially, technically, it's a compliment. Like one of my admin at one point in my life literally told me when I was like, hey, why do I, like, I have 40% special ed students in here. I'm not a special ed teacher. You can't do this. Why is some, why do the other teachers not have any? Or I was teaching all regular classes and everybody else, like multiple people had honors classes. Why am I not getting to teach an honors class? What's that about? Right. And, and then the, 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 the statement is like, well, I know you can handle these kids and you're going to, you're going to do right by them. You're going to actually teach them and not just, you know, get them through high school. And I'm like, I know what you're saying and thank you, but I shouldn't be the only one doing this. And if your staff can teach all students and teach them more than just what they need to get through, maybe you should fire them. 
I have so many stories about that. I'll do you one better. Um, how about you put in time to take a day off to do PD training? You want to attend a session during the instructional day and you go to your principal with the request. Now, mind you, you don't take days off. You're there just about every day. And one of these rare times that you put in a request to attend this PD session during the school day, the teacher says no. And the reason why is because if you leave, the kid's going to be out of control. So we need to have you here, you and your grade level partner, because my grade level partner and I were like pretty strong teachers. So if it was a situation where I was leaving, she couldn't leave. If she left, I had to stay, right? It couldn't be both of us leave at the same time because the principal didn't want to go into that classroom and be the sub because it was already a struggle to bring subs into our school at that time. So when you talk about just that toxic productivity piece, I've lived it. Mm -hmm. And it's like a gift and a curse. When you're really that good, it's like a gift and a curse because yes, you get recognized for it, but at the same time, you are given more responsibility and then that's when the inequities start to happen in terms of just workload. Yep. It's, and it's insane. And like, it's, it's what causes good teachers to leave. Yeah. And so what? <laughs> I, mm. Yeah, it's, it's a lot. It's a mm. lot. And I'm, I'm feeling some kind of way about all that. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's crazy. But one thing that I was thinking about as you were talking mm-hmm. about why it's hard for math teachers to reframe their their thinking around math is because of the way we assess it. Yeah. I believe that if we change the way that we assess math, particularly around standardized test time, right? I honestly believe that it's going to force teachers to reframe the way that they teach math, reframe yeah. the way that they think about math. Because if you look at just how it's all set up, it's set up in a way to emphasize what we've been talking about, the procedural, not so much the the theoretical aspect of it or the conceptual aspect of it it's like no how are you going to solve these problems right All imagine right. if the question was why is 100 you know written like this like imagine if that was the question right and then as you know in a kindergartner instead of just writing out 100 would have to be able to explain that's actual math that's that's math fluency right there right and well, also you know what i yep. bet a kindergartner could fucking explain it <laughs> I bet if they could. given a chance, if given a chance. Exactly. If they were actually given the chances, kindergartners are brilliant, man. My God, you could ask them to come up with an entire alphabet. They could come up. I remember in elementary school coming up with like secret code languages. And I never realized how brilliant that was. Like to pass notes so that our teachers wouldn't see what we were saying. Come up with our own secret language and code that you would have to memorize so you could talk to your friends. That's math, what they're doing right there. That's what math is. It's a code. It's like cryptography. Yes. It's like how we use variables and equations. Variables are codes. And we're trying to uncover what those variables are. Yeah. Right? Exactly. You know, one thing I remember, that just like my, it was the most fun, silly thing. This was one of the years. This was my first year teaching, actually. And I was teaching Uh pre-calculus. And um, we were learning about probability specifically about, oh God, what's the the words? Um, Combinations versus permutations. Yes. And they were like, I don't get it. What's the difference? Because I was trying to use numbers and I was like, okay, restart. You go to the ice cream store, okay? And they say cup or cone. What they're really saying is combination or permutation, all right? That's what they're saying. Now you want to get three different flavors. You're going to do, you know, the, the chocolate, strawberry, vanilla. 
You're going to put them in a cup. That's a combination. doesn't matter what order they put them in because they're all going to sit next to each other. Now, if you get the cone, though, obviously you're going to put vanilla at the bottom and then strawberry and chocolate because, you know, chocolate's so rich and you won't be able to taste it. And then the strawberry will become like a stra- chocolate-covered strawberry. And, then, you know, vanilla is just like the worst flavor ever. So you just want to cover that so it actually has flavor. And like for that was at the beginning of the year and the entire year students were talking about combinations versus permutations (laughs) because of that story. Because I told them that if they all, you know, like, I don't even remember what I think it was something along the lines of if everybody uh, gets the questions on combinations and permutations correct on this test, then at the end of the year, we'll have a vanilla ice cream party and you guys can prove me wrong about vanilla ice cream. Wow. (laughs) And I had a student come back uh, this year. He was in the hallway because he had me when he was like a freshman or something. He's a senior now. And he he was like, Miss Shrude, how's the the French vanilla ice cream? And like, he still... (laughs) 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 They did, they only kind of proved me wrong. We we decided that French vanilla wasn't true, wasn't, was good vanilla ice cream. And then a student made a coconut-based vegan ice cream. That was vanilla, and that one was really good. But I think it's because it's coconut flavor. Wow. And, and for the record, permutations and combinations, it's just a fun topic to teach. Yeah. Especially like when... Combinatorics, right? Right. Especially when you talk to students about situations where the order of the elements matter versus when they don't matter. Like, mm-hmm. for instance, if we're talking about phone numbers, you have to press the numbers in a specific order in order for it to work, which will make that a permutation. Yeah. Versus, okay, you're going to the ice cream shop. You can get the ice cream in any order you want. doesn't matter what's going to go on top, what's going to go on the bottom, even if you have a preference, right? Yeah. In the end, you're just combining the different flavors. So just going... And that's like, I guess there's different types of, like, when you you start thinking about combinatorics, there's different kinds, too. Like, not everything works the same way. And like technically, you know, there's like a, there's like levels of that from those that, that what we just talked about. And um, I remember one time a student said that they ran, like they went to the store or something to get a new phone and like they had to use their old number because apparently they've like run out of certain kinds of phone numbers. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, that's so interesting. Like, let's figure out how many possibilities there are. And the kid wouldn't engage with me because it was during passing period. But uh, <laughs> I really wanted them to. But apparently, like, 10 minutes isn't enough time to want to dig into a random math topic. But I think it would have been a great conversation if that kid had let me do that with him um, and figure out, like, what is the, like, how many phone numbers are possible? And what is the likelihood that this area code is suddenly now, like, there's no, none of these area code numbers available. How many people would have had to actually have a phone number? Are there that many people who live in this area right now? And then it starts getting into all the bots and stuff, right? And then it gets, you know, it's just shifting the mindset leads into such fun, exciting, interesting conversations. It doesn't, and and ethnic studies math does not mean talking exclusively about racial oppression every day. That's not what ethnic studies math is. And I know that people think that's what it is because it has the word ethnic in it and it's associated with critical race theory, but it's not, it's... Ethnic studies math, it's literally so, so much about playing with math and enjoying it and seeing the history of it and learning about what we can do with it in the future, finding out where people missed out on opportunities to make things right or to do things better and how we can fix that and creating those, creating those like those neural pathways for our students to become the great advent, the great like adventurers 
and the great inventors that they're going to be when they leave the classrooms. I mean, that's ultimately what it should be about. So last question before we get into the lightning round, and I think this will be a perfect way to wrap this up, right? Moving forward. So you and I have both acknowledged that the way we were taught math from K to 12, even in our college years, wasn't maybe wasn't the best way for us to learn how to teach math. And then we had this late awakening, Mm -hmm. this epiphany of how math should be taught. So I'm wondering, is it just a case where we have to go into our institutions of higher learning and try to get to these math departments to, to say, hey, let's see if we can incorporate this ethnic studies component. That's not to say that we can't talk about theory, we can't talk about the different mathematicians, but even the way we even go about doing that, let's also incorporate those who represent the populations that are in front of us, right? Because not just these white mathematicians, let's let's talk about the history. You talked about the ethno-mathematics, right? Mm-hmm. Let's talk about Kemet. Let's talk about the Mayan civilizations. Let's talk about these other civilizations that we don't normally talk about in these uh, math courses. Right. And we're really going to be talking about representation, diversity, and and really just humanizing the students who are in these courses. Because I could tell you as a math major, not one of them teachers talked about Kemet, but they talked about Kemet because I was an African-American studies minor. Mm. I learned about Kemet as an AFAM minor, but in my math classes, nope. Right. I didn't hear that. Didn't hear nothing. I didn't know who that. Today's a hard day for remembering people's names and words for things. Um, algebra project. Uh, Oh, Bob Moses. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> I was just you. talking about him yesterday, too. Rest I didn't even know who Bob Moses was. Yeah. I learned about Bob Moses in grad school from not a colleague in math, by the way. I mm. learned about him from a colleague who was teaching history who happened upon his, his information because he had learned ethnic studies in college. And he shared it with me when I was in grad school sent, and was like, do you know who Bob Moses is? And I was like, no, who's that? I had heard about the skills and the things that he was doing, right? Other people be using his things, but they ain't using his name. I didn't know those things came from him. Things like, I was, you know, that's, that's, that's what I'm saying. It's not, you can't just have the representation because when we don't, when all we got is representation, it ends up saying like, oh yeah, this person did this white math mm-hmm. and not acknowledging the inventions and the fact that people of color, disabled people, women, all create theories or just i don't know i'm I still i'm not sold on the create versus discover math thing yet. I, haven't, I haven't figured it out yeah i mean that part alone we would need another hour to unpack which unfortunately we do not have <laughs> contributed in some way in a, in, a, in a more than just agreeing to what whiteness has taught us way sure yeah. for sure but wow this has just been a great conversation and just to wrap this up, we're going to do a quick lightning round. No, just a few questions uh, for the audience to just get to know more about you outside of this important work. So first question that I have is, what is something that you like to do for self-care? What, what do you do to take care of yourself? Reading is my newfound love again. I, I was a lover of reading in school and I forgot the love of it once I became an adult. 
even, you know, in high school, you kind of just, you just run out of time. And I found it again, and I just absolutely love reading again. And I found so many, so much joy and escape in the fiction and so much beauty in the nonfiction that I've been reading. So it's just been a new way of self-care has been to read. Ooh. And is there a book you're currently reading right now? Um, okay, I'm going to share two. Sure. And I'll make sure I pull up the, the author's names so that I can promote them because they were amazing. So the first book is a nonfiction book that I just finished reading, and it's called Braiding Sweetgrass. And I'm trying to pull up the author. Okay, um, it's by Robin Wall Kimmer. I'm sorry if I said that wrong. But it's, um, so Braiding Sweetgrass, Indigenous Wisdom, Scientific Knowledge, and the Teaching of Plants. And it was just the most like soul, like warming and affirming book about nature and our, our world and how we live in it and our relationship to the land. And it was probably the first book that helped me truly understand what land acknowledgements were actually about. Like deeply understand, not just I knew what they were for and all that, but like didn't have, I didn't have a relationship to land acknowledgements until I read this book. And so that was really amazing. And I highly recommend that one for learning and for audiobook, by the way, because Robin will, Robin Wall Kimmerer has amazing, like ASMR voice. So, and then the other was a book that my friend actually got me. It's a seven days in June by Tia Williams. It's a romance novel. And I, I'm absolutely in love with it. Highly recommend. Beautiful black love story. So good. Awesome. Awesome. And I could tell because it just brings joy to your face. I'm looking at how you're smiling. <laughs> <laughs> yes, they were two amazing, amazing books. All right. If you can invite three influential figures that are alive to dinner, who would they be? So I thought about this one a lot, actually. I know for sure, too, and I'm still deciding on the third, but one of them is going to be my grandfather because he was influential. He's the reason I'm here. And if I have any influence today, it's because of him. Mm -hmm. And the other is actually Bob Moses, just because the things he did were absolutely incredible. And for some of them, I'm like, "Mm, I don't know if I agree with you. So I need to hear from you because I'm hearing from other people what what, what your meeting was. And I want to know what yours was from from you. And then I think the third is Asada. Asada Shakur. Yeah. Yeah. I want to know her. I read her back and I was absolutely amazed. And I just, I, I just want to know. I want to know more. I want to hear her. So I don't know. I, I, I don't know enough about her story, but the part that I did know both inspired me and shook me all at the same time. Mm, I know that's right. And you and a whole lot of people have been inspired by Asada. She's a popular person at these tables. I could tell you that that much. Yeah. But uh, Shraddha, thank you so much. Thank, thank you for you. having me. Yeah, this has been this has been great. I don't know. We may have to do a part two. We may have to bring you back. <laughs> you know, I'm I'm down for it. With the this was an amazing conversation. You're, um, I love the layout for your your conversations um, and all of the math talk is so much fun. I love talking math with people who love math, not just know it. I feel yeah. that love in your in your heart for math. It's not it's not every day that I get to talk with folks who actually understand the discipline, but but really care about how it's taught, because that's two different things. I want more people to love it. That's that's my at the end of the day. That's that's all I want. I want people to leave my class. I want people to leave talking to me being like, God, math is so fucking cool. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> there it is. There it is. If at the end of the day, we can just build confidence in our learners, maybe they haven't mastered all the concepts. Maybe they don't know everything. That's fine. Mm-hmm. But they feel better about themselves than they did when they first entered the math classroom 180 plus days ago. We've done our job. Facts. We've done our job. God, we have a great job, don't we? Yes, we do. For sure. But listen, uh, I want to make sure you get a good start. Um, Hopefully this was a great start to your well-deserved week off. Definitely it was. I'm stoked. I was so like, oh, I don't know how this is going to go, but damn, I'm glad. I'm glad we did this. And it was, I feel so happy. And I'm about to go upstairs and watch Columbo with my partner and try to figure out how I can turn watching an episode of Columbo into a lesson on proofs. Oh my goodness, you're a number. <laughs> you old school. You 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 are old school right here. Okay, let me find out. You watching Columbo. Oh man. It's my partner's thing. I'll I'll admit that one. I didn't watch till he started watching. I was like, this is good. Yeah. Yeah. My um so my father-in-law watches Columbo because they watch uh the stations. I think it's called Me TV. <laughs> That has all the old school shows, all the old school sitcoms are on this channel. I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. That's where you watch Golden Girls, too. <laughs> I'm just saying the only downside to these old school things, as great as they were, is the lack of melanin. That That's is very it. true. But other than that, man, they're they good for what they were. Yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. But uh, Shreva, thank you. Thank you so much. And I'm wishing you a good break, a great break. And hopefully we can connect again soon. Sounds good, Kwame. I'll see you later. Take All care. All right. Take care. All right, people. We're about to end another episode of Radical Math Talk. And as always, I wish you all a good morning, good afternoon, good night, wherever you are in the world. And we're going to do this again another time. Peace out, everybody. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Radical Math Talk. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Anchor, Spotify, and all other streaming platforms. We are always striving to provide you with quality content. So if you love what you heard today, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. And to check out the video episodes of the podcast, you can visit our website at identitytalk.com. Or numeral four educators.com. I'll say it one more time. Identity talk for educators.com. Thank you and have a great day.